Eric Sauer, um, a German author, scholar, wrote this, and I think we have it on our screen. But he says, the present age is Easter time. It begins with the resurrection of the Redeemer, and it ends with the resurrection of the redeemed. The present age is Easter time. It begins with the resurrection of the Redeemer. It ends with the resurrection of the redeemed. So we live between two Easter's. And in the power of the first Easter, we go to meet the last Easter. There are a number of things that uh, attracted me to that particular quote as, as, as I was preparing for this Sunday's message. First thing is his recognition of the historical facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, that something happened in the historical past that is significant. He also points forward to the future hope of, that res- of, of the resurrection or the implications, the future implications of what happened in the past. But here's one of the things he did that I think is important and I hope to focus a little bit on today. He also highlights the present implications of that past historical event. In other words, in the past, Christ rose from the dead as an historical fact. Oftentimes, we then focus on the benefits to be received in the future and neglect that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has present day implications. That it is important for us right in the here and now. And so today, as we go forward by preview of where I hope to go today, is that um, our text today will point out that future hope as well as provide for us a present encouragement that Christ's resurrection can sustain us now as we wait for what is future. So Christ's resurrection has a future benefit, future implications, future beauties and glories for us, but let's not leave the resurrection in the past. Let's not simply cling and hope and hold on as tight as we can to the resurrection in the future. I want you to understand that Christ's resurrection in the past has implications and an encouragement for us today as we wait for what is going to happen. So that's that's my goal. I have basically two points, a future hope and a present encouragement. So if you will, let's look at our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the great resurrection chapter. Perhaps we know more about resurrection from this particular passage of text than anywhere else in the Bible. At least it's all condensed into to one nice chapter. But I'm going to read with, um, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read through verse tw- 26. So listen to God's inerrant word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received and which you stand and which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if indeed, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Let me give you just a little bit of the context before we get rolling in our, in our message. First of all, in the very first part of this passage, in the very first part of this chapter, Paul outlines the gospel. And in this outline of the gospel, which is just good news, gospel means good news, so Paul is outlining the good news. And one of the things that Paul points out as a central aspect of the good news is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is, you have no good news, you have no gospel, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the first thing he's going, this is very central. If you don't have resurrection, you don't have good news. And then he goes on and he begins to address those who are doubting this idea of resurrection. He addresses the skeptics who are saying, well, there is no resurrection. And you might say, well, how, how do they say that? You've got to remember, in the, in the context in which Paul is writing, resurrection is, I'm trying to think of the, the best way to describe it. I, I can't think of a good word. Um, icky. That's the right word. If you were a Roman citizen of uh, kind of a Greek thought, following the ideas of Plato and Socrates, resurrection was icky. You see, matter, like the flesh, this body, is, is wicked, it's corrupt, it's defiled. We want nothing to do with the body. The spirit, that immaterial part in us, that's good. The goal of pagan religion was to escape this mortal coil, to shed this body, because remember it's icky, and to release your spirit. So when Paul starts preaching resurrection, remember, it's a body, and they think that's gross. This is why Paul had so much trouble when he was on the, uh, the, the hill in Athens, on Mars Hill, and he starts preaching the resurrection. Everybody gets upset because they don't like the idea. How can physical body have be anything good? It's nasty. The only thing that's good is the immaterial, the spirit. So Paul is addressing those skeptics who are saying there is no resurrection. It's icky. You can write that down. Yeah, it's I-C-K-Y. It is a noun. So 
they're, they're denying this idea of resurrection. And Paul says, well, listen, if there is no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ didn't rise, you're dead in your sins. There is no good news. So that's, that's kind of the background. That's where, where Paul is going. And he starts to show how illogical their reasoning is, that you can't have your forgiveness of sins. You can't have good news of the gospel without a physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It makes no sense. So that's the background. Now let's get into our, our text. And then Paul begins in verse 20. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. So people are saying Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. And Paul starts saying, look, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then you're in bad shape. You're still in your sins. And we're to be the most pitied of all people. But that's not the truth. The truth is, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. This is an emphatic statement of fact. This is not a matter of opinion. Well, I'm glad that you believe that. That's good for you. But in my own personal opinion, that's not the way it works. No, Paul is not saying this is a matter of opinion. He is stating this is a matter of fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. And in fact, earlier he said, listen, there are plenty of witnesses. He appeared to 500. Some of them are even still alive, Paul says. Now, some of them have died, but some of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. That's an amazing statement. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Not a matter of opinion. It is not a matter of a, a feeling either. We live in a day of feelings, a day of, well, this is what I feel and this is what I think. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, I don't really care how you feel. What I'm telling you is fact. And the fact is Christ is raised from the dead. I want you to, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I am. To be certain of Christ's resurrection is to be certain of your own. All right? To be certain of Christ's resurrection is to be certain of your own. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Probably do well, kids, to remember. Here we go. First fruits. What does it mean when Paul says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have been raised from the dead? Well, this goes back to Leviticus chapter 23. It's good to know our Old Testament. And we'll find out much about first fruits. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. It's a rather detailed passage of text. But here's what happened. Farmer would go out, he would sow his field, he'd plant his crops, he'd water, and then he'd wait. And then comes the harvest time. One day, the farmer would go out and he would see his crops coming up. And perhaps there's a, out in the corner of the field somewhere, there's a place where there's extra amounts of nutrients in the soil, or maybe the sun hits just right, and the crop there is really starting to produce. And these were the first fruits of the harvest. They are not the entire harvest. They're just the first part. Remember, the harvest is still to come. And he would collect those, those first fruits, that first piece of corn or that first uh, harvest of grapes or that first uh, bundle of wheat. And he would take it and he would take it to the priest and the priest would offer it to God. And it was a thanksgiving. It was kind of what they called a wave offering. And it was offered to God as thanks that there's a harvest to follow. What you need to understand is the first fruits of the harvest are not the harvest. They are, in a sense, a guarantee or a pledge or a promise that there will be a harvest. It's early in the season. 
The growing season is in it. It hasn't come yet. The first fruits are just out there, the first fruits. But it's the guarantee that I'm going to have a harvest. I'm going to have a bunch of grain, not just a little bit of grain. I'm going to have a bunch of grain. I'm not just going to have a few stalks of corn. I'm going to have a massive, I've got a whole field of corn coming. This is just the first part that crops up that I, that I can see. But it is the guarantee that more would follow. And so Jesus is the first fruits of those resurrected from the dead. In other words, Jesus is the first to be resurrected and therefore the guarantee of a harvest of resurrection. There's a harvest of resurrection. How do you know? You know because Christ is the first fruit. He is not the harvest. The harvest is all those who come to Christ and follow after him. When they, there will come a point in time, and we'll get to this, where they also will be raised like Christ was raised. We are not talking about just having a spirit body in some spiritual realm. The resurrection is that you will be given a new body, just like Christ had a new body. Christ is the, res, is the first resurrection. Just real quick, you should note, some people might ask, well, if it says that he's the first one to be raised from the dead, I thought Lazarus, or what about um, the widow at Nain, or Jairus' daughter, they were not resurrected. We might use that term, they were not resurrected. They were resuscitated, perhaps. But they came back to life, they died again. They are waiting for their resurrection as well. Christ is the first one who died. Christ just didn't come back in his former self. He came back in a different type of body transcended time and space, but it was physical. So Jesus is the first to be resurrected and his resurrection is the guarantee or the pledge that there will be a harvest of resurrection. You should note, I think it's interesting, the timing. The timing of this is when they offered the harvest of of first fruits came, there was the Passover. What happened on the Passover? The sacrificial lamb was slain. Atonement for sin was taken care of. There was a Sabbath day. Then there was the celebration of first fruits. Jesus Christ, Passover lamb, died on the Sabbath. There was a Sabbath day raised on the day of the celebration of first fruits. Folks, this is no accident. So Jesus Christ then, now I want you to know, but in fact it is true then that Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then Paul goes back Back to creation, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made made alive. We should note this, this idea of in Adam and in Christ. Um, This shouldn't be too hard for us to understand. We live in a representative government. And in our government, we elect officials. um, We call them representatives. And they, we send them off to Washington and they represent us. And We don't all go to Washington and represent our own interests. We get one person, or we get a person or maybe a couple of people, and they are our representatives back in Washington. Now, if our representatives represent us well, we're blessed, right? Maybe a good economy, more jobs, those types of things, uh, better roads, all sorts of, we, we do better. If our representatives are corrupt and evil, well, we'll suffer. And then we gotta get a new representative. So we understand representative government, and this is exactly what happens. In Adam, our first representative, the representative of mankind, he sinned. And therefore, death came to the soul that sins will die. Adam sinned. And because of that, all all that Adam represented dies as well. This is easily seen, right? Everybody dies. Everybody. 
There is nobody here that will not die. Everybody dies. Name, well, I know some of you smart people will name two people who did not die, but they're the exceptions. The bottom line is you're probably not an exception. Because of Adam's sin, you and I will die. Why do we die? Because our representative sinned against a holy God. And as a result, those he represented will die. And here's the thing. We are in Adam. All of us are born in Adam. Then it goes on. It says, but in Christ, so also in Christ, all shall be made alive. So it seems like we have these two spheres. And this is something that um, is, is highlighted really well in Romans chapter 5. And we've been studying that on Wednesday night. We've been studying in Romans. And Romans 5 was amazing how we described how we have these two spheres. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There's only two types of people in the world. Those in Adam and you will die. And those in Christ and you will live. Two types of people. In Christ, Christ was sinless. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ lives forever. And if you are in Christ, you also will live forever. There are these two spheres. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. By birth, we're in Adam. By rebirth or new birth, we are in Christ. When you are born, you are in Adam and you will die. By rebirth, that is new birth or being born again, being born of the Spirit, being made a new creation, in you are placed, you are transferred out of that sphere and placed into the sphere of Jesus Christ who lives forever and ever. You see how that works? All right. So you're not in between. You can't be in, well, I'm kind of in both sphere at the same time. There's no category for that in Scripture. Well, I kinda, I'm kind of a new creation, but not really. Then you're not a new creation. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. I'm going to plead with you today. If you are not in Christ, then I'm going to plead with you to consider the claims of Jesus Christ and the fact that he rose from the dead and that you can have forgiveness of your sins. You can be made right with God. Because see, in Adam, you're not right with God. I know people like to think we're okay with God. God and me, we got this thing worked out. No, you don't. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are secure. If you are not, and if you have any questions and you're not certain, I'd love to talk to you. Charlie, who was up here reading scripture, he'll talk to you. Nelson was out there handing you um, notes. He'll talk with you. Samuel's back in the, uh, in, in the cage back there flipping the slides. He'll be happy to talk with you about what it means to be in Christ or in Adam and how to move from being in Adam to being in Christ. So, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And then he says this, but each in his own order. He's talking about this resurrection that's going to happen in the future. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ the firstfruits, he's been raised. Then those who are, note, in Christ at his second coming will be raised up with him again. We'll see this in 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 16, where it says um, this. For the Lord himself, well, I'm going to back up a little bit. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Christ the first fruits, then at his second coming, we who happen to be hanging out on this earth at the second coming of Christ will also rise. This is, this is the order if you will, of the resurrection. Because of the historical fact that Christ has risen from the dead, our sins can be forgiven, and we also will put on a resurrection body and live eternally with Christ our Lord. And then Paul says this, then comes the end. <laughs> Literally says, then the end. Just because Paul says the end doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to end. <laughs> the end here means the the, the goal or the fulfillment, it's the culmination. It's not just a, a stop. It's not like at the end now something has stopped. It's the end and like everything has been fulfilled. Everything has been completed. The, the plan of God has now reached its culmination. And I hope that we can take encouragement from this, from the fact that God has a plan. We look around our world and we see it's a mess and we see these bombings in Sri Lanka today. We see horrific things going on and we, and we wonder what is going on. I want you to understand that God is moving history along and he has a plan. And the plan is to raise you from the dead that you might dwell forever with him. That's what he's talking about. It's the culmination of the plan. God has a plan. He's not just kind of making this up or winging it as he goes. God has a plan. And while things look messy, we have assurance that regardless of how this world may collapse around us, God has a plan. And that plan includes all who are in Christ will be raised and will dwell with him forever and ever. That's the plan. The goal is restoration. The goal is to restore, if you will, to restore Eden. If you look at the end of the book of Revelation, if you look at the end of the book, what do you have? You have mankind living in a temple garden in the presence of God. What do you have back in Genesis 1 and 2? You have mankind living in a temple garden in the presence of God, walking with God. God's going to put it back. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead is a guarantee. The guarantee. It's a promise. It's a pledge. And God never lies. Then it says, and he must reign. This gets a little complex. It says, and then, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy is death. I want to just pause here and, and note this idea how Paul now goes in talking about how Christ must reign. You'll notice how Paul has shifted from future benefits of the resurrection, that is, we will be raised up and reign with Christ forever and live with Christ forever, to the present reality that Christ now reigns. And I think we want to um, be very, very deliberate about this, this. I want to point out this word until. Note this word until. For he must reign, verse 25, he must reign until. And you know me, I like these little connecting words. I think they're filled with meaning. The idea of until means that Christ is reigning now. That Christ's reign isn't just some future event. Christ is reigning now. Christ's reign does not begin at his second coming. Christ reigns now. Acts chapter 1. When we are in Acts chapter 1, we saw that. We saw Christ ascend to his throne. He is now seated on his throne. He reigns now. The other thing we see about this until is that um, Christ is reigning until enemies are defeated. In other words, his present reign entails warfare. 
But there's an element of certainty, right? The word until gives us an element of certainty that until his enemies are defeated, his enemies will be defeated. So Christ is reigning now and that all those who oppose his rule and reign will be defeated. That's a guarantee. So let me give you a quick summary of this idea of until. Christ is reigning now and he's reigning to win. There is this shift to the present, no longer on the future. The benefits of his resurrection are not future only. That is, there is an end decreed by God and Christ is moving and working in a way and in his timing to defeat all that opposes his just rule. The first thing, Christ is reigning now and he must reign until his enemies are defeated. Note the extent of his rule. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying what every rule and every authority, and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Notice the extent of his reign. It is all and every. That is, the extent of his reign is comprehensive. What we draw from this is that when we struggle in our faith, when we struggle to live out the life of Christ that is within us, when we struggle with things like addiction and pride and legalism and greed and prejudice and arrogance and all of these things, I want you to know you do not struggle alone. When you set yourself to do battle with the enemies of your faith, you do not fight alone. All and every enemy that diminishes the glory of Christ are going to be subject to him. Christ is fighting to win. And Christ is dwelling in you if you are in Christ. And Christ is conforming us to his own image. So he must reign. He, he is reigning now. He is reigning to win. And all and everything that opposes him will be subject to him. You do not fight alone. And then finally, he must reign. Notice this. Then comes the end. Or I'm sorry, verse 26. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Christ has the authority to redeem a people. He must reign. He has the authority to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He has the authority to defeat every enemy. And he must redeem his people. And he must defeat all opposition. Nothing can hinder it. That is, we affirm with the book of Philippians that Paul also wrote, says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He must reign. He must redeem his people. And he must rule over and subject all things under his feet. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then our text ends with the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I want you to understand death is an enemy. We get together now, and when a, a loved one dies, we, we have these celebrations of life, and I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I, I think we should. But I fear that perhaps we lose the reality sometimes that, enemy, that death is an intruder. See, we were not meant to die. We were meant to dwell with God forever, but man sinned, and through one man, death spread to all. Therefore, all die. I told you, God's going the plan is to put everything back where death no longer rules. The final enemy is death. It is an enemy. None of you have defeated it. Oh, you postponed it. Might have escaped it a few times. Been a few times you probably thought, man, I should have been dead. But that's just stating the obvious that yeah, one of these days, you know, I, death is a reality. But it is an enemy. And it is the last enemy, but it is an enemy that Christ will defeat. It will be defeated. It will be crushed under his feet. 
and the harvest of the resurrection. Remember, Jesus is the first fruit of all those who rise from the dead. You and I will be the harvest of that resurrection. That is the annihilation of the final enemy. There will come a day where that enemy is completely defeated. And death, oh death, where is your victory? Oh grave, where is your sting? Death will be swallowed up in victory. And in fact, in Revelation, it says death and Hades. That's interesting. Death is personified. Death is cast into the lake of fire and eternally annihilated, eternally um, destroyed. Just to be all technical, some have noted this idea of the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Have noted the present tense of that particular verb. For those of you who are interested, you can listen. The rest of you, I'm almost done. What this has to do is that the destruction of death began. That is, death is being destroyed. The destruction of death began when Jesus rose from the grave. And it is concluded when he comes again. He is now defeating death. The culmination will come when he comes again. And you and I, this mortal, puts on immortality. And we will live forever with Christ. I want to share with you just a few things. As I stated, we are born in Adam. That is, we are born as people who will die, and more specifically, we will die in our sins. And we will face an eternal separation from God. The reason being is because uh, we sin. We rebel against a holy God. Every one of you have. You've lied, you've cheated, you've stole, you've thought wrong thoughts, you've been selfish, you've been prideful, you've been arrogant. I don't know, I could go on, but you know. And the wages of sin is death. And it's eternal death. It is forever death. It is eternal separation from a holy God. And here's the thing, there's nothing you can do about it. Sorry. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough talents. You aren't smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not handsome enough. You're none of those things. Oh, you might be pretty and you might be handsome. You might be wealthy. You might be educated. You might be all of those things. You're just not enough. See, here's the thing. You can say, well, look, if I do enough good works, then God will accept me. Let me ask you, who gave you the ability to do those good works? God gave them to you, so you're just giving back to God what he already gave you. You have nothing, nothing. Going, well, that's pretty bad news. I'm in Adam, I'm going to die, and there's nothing I can do about it. Bad news, you're right, terrible news. Let me give you the good news. Remember, Paul began this with the gospel, and the good news is this. That Jesus Christ, the righteous, did not sin, did not lie, was never prideful, was never arrogant, never did anything that compromised, never sinned. And he died in your place. We call this a substitutionary atonement. It's just a fancy word for Christ died for you. He bore your sins. So he took the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out fully on Jesus. The wrath of God that was for you, that would punish you forever, for eternity, was placed upon Christ. On the cross, on what we call Good Friday, he bore your sins. He drank God's wrath to the dregs. And because he had not sinned ever, death could not hold him and he rose again. We might say um, his death was the payment for sin. I think as Charlie puts it, I'm stealing this from Charlie. The resurrection is the statement. The check is cleared. The payment's been received. There are sufficient funds. Your payment has been made and it is good. And if you are in Christ... You can be forgiven of your sins. Christ pays for your sins. You don't. Your righteousness, you are made right with God because Christ is righteous and you need to be in Christ. How do you do that? Jesus told us. He came his very first sermon. Do you know what Jesus' very first sermon was? The kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe the gospel, to share with you the gospel. That there's a God who made you, who rules over all things, and we've sinned against that God, and we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but Christ has made us alive together with him, and if we will confess Jesus with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. He will transfer you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious Son. All on his, mer- all on his merits, the merits of Christ alone. So if you can come and you will say, Lord, I got nothing. I got nothing to offer you. I'm just a broken mess of nothingness. God says, that's exactly what I want. It's perfect, perfect. And I will endow upon you the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. And when I look upon you, I'm looking upon the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. We call this double imputation, another fancy term. That is, your sins were imputed or credited to Christ. Now you're sinless, that's good. But you're not righteous, but his righteousness now is imputed to you. You are now the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Not only are you sinless, but you are right before God. All upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. That's the gospel. I don't know if I've explained it well. Pray that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is convicting you um, and showing you that it's time to call upon the name of the Lord. We are here. We want to talk with you. We want to share the gospel with you. We want to talk about what it is to live in Christ. So I'll conclude with this. Easter began with the first resurrection. Easter concludes with the resurrection of his people. The resurrection of Jesus Christ provides for us a future hope. That is that we will live. It also, the resurrection of Christ provides a present hope that he is reigning now and he will he reigns now and rules now. And he is in control now. I hope you will consider these claims. I'm going to just ask to spend a few moments for, for uh, quiet reflection. And then we're going to uh, have some announcements and we'll receive our offerings. But let's just uh, have a si- some silence for reflection.